and welcome to Crying on My Yoga Mat. My name is JD, and this podcast is all about building a community where, alongside amazing guests, we have real conversations about the low lows, celebrate the highs, and everything in between. I know what it's like to go through life feeling stuck and powerless to do anything about it. Here, you'll meet yourself where you are and learn tangible tools to help you become who you want to be while honoring the journey. You've gotten this far, so let's keep going together. Take a deep breath and let's go. We have our very first guest, Emmy Chahal, and I am so excited for you to hear this conversation. Emmy was introduced to yoga as a child through her grandmother and mother. Her ancestors are from the north of India, and the practice of yoga connects her deeply to her heritage. She's been teaching yoga since 2012 in a variety of settings. And her passion lies in educating about how yoga is a site for intergenerational healing through the lens of cultural awareness training. As a South Asian woman working in the North American yoga industry, her voice is dedicated to sharing the complexities of social inequity, decolonization, and avoiding cultural appropriation. Emmy seeks to help others understand their role in dismantling old systems of power and unpacking how privilege operates in the yoga world and how we can build new ways to be as inclusive, just, and equitable as possible. For more about Emmy, visit her website, emmychahal.com. Let's get into it. Hi, Emmy. Thank you so much for being here with me. Oh, you're welcome. It's it's a delight to have this conversation with you. Oh, my goodness. It is, though. <laughs> it really is. What would today, Emmy, like to tell our audience about yourself? Well, I'm a cultural educator, a yoga teacher, and an intuitive healer. And I work at the crossroads of business and spirituality and social justice. And lately, um, since the amazing, basically, labor of the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the incredible activists, um, the wellness field has finally opened up to discussing ethical spirituality and cultural appropriation. Um, and other, you know, buzzwords that are that are that are very relevant. So I do a lot of work around um, ancestral healing, um, and just connecting us back to the roots of yoga, um, and engaging in right relationship with Indigenous people and their cultural and spiritual practices. Amazing. So while the tone of this podcast won't be entirely about yoga, I want to recognize that the space is not mine but I am in the space. So I really appreciate you taking the time to enter into this uh, conversation and allow me in a space that was yours long before it was mine. The, it was the, where your ancestry comes from long before my ancestors even knew where your ancestors were on the map. Yeah, yeah. and I think also, like, I, I'd love to acknowledge the land I'm on, too. You know, I'm on unceded Coast Salish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Skohomish territory. And um, I really give my thanks to uh, my Coast Salish friends 
especially my teachers um, who have talked a lot about allyship and encouraged me to access my ancestors and speak um, with my ancestors and allow my ancestors to speak through me. Um, this work was really encouraged by my Coast Salish friends and um, the work I've done with Coast Salish communities and Indigenous communities on Turtle Island has been so transformative. Um, these incredibly resilient, knowledgeable, amazing women have um, have helped reconnect myself and so many others to our ancestors. So I want to give my deep thanks to all of those people on my path that have led me to this work. And also just to acknowledge all the ancestors of everyone who's listening. And, you know, my ancestors are all from the north of India. I was born on Anglo-Saxon territory. I was born in England um, and I was raised here on unceded stolen uh, Coast Salish territory um, of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh. And, and that has inevitably, the mountains here, the oceans, the rivers, the streams have informed my approach to yoga, have informed my healing journey. Um, and I am forever indebted to this land where I am a, an uninvited settler and guest. Um, and I always, I always want to start with that gratitude. Oh, I'm so, so thankful that you said that. I am born and raised on and in this land. Um, I believe the Katsi, Semiamu, Kwantlen people's land. And I have bragged about this land as long as I've been alive because it's, it's the most stunning, stunning place. And I'm so, so excited to see so many people rising up for it and fighting for the beautiful growth that we have here. And people are getting more and more okay with the rain, which they need to because we live in a rainforest, people. Yes, we live in one of the only temperate rainforests in the world and those trees are precious. <laughs> I do wanna to touch back on a previous word you said, you were talking about appropriation. And in other interviews, I've heard you use instead the words extractivism and co-modification. And co-modification was the one that really struck me. And I would love if you could give my audience a little bit more about that. Yes, absolutely. So living in a capitalist uh, environment here in North America or this land that we call North America, that was that is Turtle Island, um, you know, yoga has been commodified. Uh, the wellness industry has been a source of profit and income uh, for a very specific population who has been profiting off of it. Um, in one of my presentations, for example, I have this slide of the CEO of Lululemon, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow from Goop, this, uh, all of the major yoga teachers that were at Wanderlust. And it was all one demographic that was profiting off of yoga. Even here in Vancouver, uh, the studio Owners of major chains um, have for 25 years plus profited off of yoga without ever acknowledging the fact that South Asian people or Indian people have been absent from those classes, from even teaching there. If we are there, it's it can be awkward for us. Um, I I personally was was deeply uh, offended by one of these studio owners who had four studios. And um, she basically sent out a, a, an email to her newsletter of probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, she has a lot of influence. Um, and she, in one of these emails, she took words from the Holy Sikh scriptures, from my ancestral teachings, from a faith that is 
based on oneness from 500 years ago from the Guru Granth Sahib and um, took those words and said to her entire audience, the meaning of these words doesn't matter. It's just the sound current. And to ignore, uh, first of all, that sacred language of Gurmukhi, to ignore the meaning of the words, to not cite it. And then she went on to sell something <laughs> after that. So it was like, this, the, I'm selling this workshop online, whatever, whatever she was doing. And, you know, uh, it's a great example of what I came up against over and over again, teaching internationally was I sent her an email and I said, Hey, just really politely, you know, I, I think there's, I think you should cite where your source is from. Like, you know, that's pretty basic. Um, and, you know, it, it comes across pretty badly if as someone who's from India for you to claim that knowledge as your own and then try to make money off of it. And she basically said in one sentence, just completely stonewalled me and said, you know, don't worry. I talk about it in my teacher training, which of course people pay 5,000 dollars for um you know and uh I can't really talk right now I'm I'm in Greece on on a retreat and, uh, you know and, <laughs> it just keeps and getting I'm better like, you're emailing me you can obviously talk uh and I've had actually zero communication with that person because they just refuse to discuss this and unfortunately JD that's been my experience until last year is every time I wanted to discuss this with other yoga teachers or other people in the yoga community I was told explicitly not to or it was ignored or it made people uncomfortable because their livelihood was threatened. Um, and me speaking up on behalf of my ancestors and my spiritual practice uh, was not welcome. It was not only not welcome, but it was denied. And I was told that it was unspiritual to talk about <clears throat> social justice. So okay, there's, that, there's two, like two, two quick things just from that last bit. <laughs> yeah. One, not spiritual yeah. is yes. laughable at the, at, the, at the least. And then, yeah. Their livelihoods being at risk is the other yeah. laughable offense because it's um, what yeah. about your ancestors? What about I mean, we can bring the word extractivism in there, too, because, <laughs> yeah, forty five trillion dollars of resources stolen from India over the course of 400 years, the biggest diamond in the world being in the Tower of London today. Uh, you know, there's there's massive pain in my history and for Punjabi Sikh people. In the north of India, there's massive pain from 1947, from partition, um, from being forced by arbitrary borders to basically the British initiated a genocide um, based on, on people had lived harmoniously there and peacefully in India, more or less for, for thousands of years, you know, and uh, my people are warrior people. We're close to the borders and in, 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 in the mountains, uh, we're the agricultural hub for the breadbasket of India. And uh, the British drew a line in 1947 through the most heterogeneous part of India, which resulted in massive violence because all the Muslims were forced into Pakistan. All the Hindus and Sikhs were forced into what was now called India. And this is a very recent trauma of um, millions of people dying, massive rape, massive violence. My grandparents lived through that. And it's a genocide that's not talked about. It's not uh, published in Canadian history books. You know, they say history is written by the victors. Right. So we instead worship all these British settler people in our history books and say, oh, wow, you know, John A. MacDonald did this. So, well, he was also a racist and killed massive amounts of indigenous people. He was people, so racist. Right? Actually read some quotes so, from some of these people. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, right. And so people haven't done that research because the books have been swayed and written in a way um, that doesn't tell the whole story. So when I start talking about what's been stolen out of India, not only was yoga banned in India for 400 years, but $45 trillion of resources given to the British Empire. You know, my great grandparents fought for the British Army in World War II. Um, we're talking about famines because food and spices and all these rich resources. India is extremely resource rich. It's why we never had to invade anywhere else. Um, you know, all those resources taken out. And to this day, you know, the Taj Mahal has all these holes in it because there used to be an inlay of garnet and gems, but every little gem was pulled out by the British. So, you know, there it, it goes so deep. Um, there's many other things I could say about internalized inferiority. Um, there's many things I could say about um, just why Indians feel like they have to be teachers, doctors, and engineers, um, why uh, English has been privileged above our indigenous languages, of which there are hundreds. Um, there's so, so many parts of my ancestors that are aching to be heard. And this has been the first year when I've been able to successfully in the yoga world speak about it. Amazing. And how can you tell me about how that feels just like in your just in in right here in your gut? How does that feel in your soul being able this last year to have ears that are a little more open to what you are crying out yeah. Yeah, you know, in my body, I feel a sense of spaciousness and hope. It, it has been a mixed bag. It has been a mixed bag. I've had a lot of people ask me for free labor. I've had a lot of my academic background, which is in cultural studies, looking at power and privilege and class and gender. I've been overlooked many times in the yoga industry um, as not an expert or, you know, I've never been hired by a studio. You know, there's been so many systemic barriers for myself. So to suddenly be given a voice feels great, but it also feels complicated because I'm not the only voice of all of India. I'm not the only Indian woman who wants to do this. There are so many of us now coming out from, from, from what the work we've been doing. You know, I have specialties in, in trauma-sensitive yoga and in body pedagogy. I've done original research on yoga in the university classroom. You know, all of that was all overlooked before. So there's definitely lingering resentment around why is it so hard for me to get paid what I'm worth? Why are people so resistant to hearing this? You know, why, why is it so draining for me to have to do these events and then not get paid or to get paid, a, you know, a really terrible fee? So I've had to create strict financial boundaries for myself where $45 trillion was stolen. So I see myself as a channel for reparations. And now by having better boundaries in my business practices, I can channel that money into causes I believe in, like supporting other South Asian women in health and entrepreneurship, and also supporting indigenous women on whose land I occupy. So, you know, Punjabis were forcibly dis displaced by uh, the genocide of 1947, then also the, the terrorism that Punjabis faced in 1985. Um, you know, politics in India is, is a whole gamut of things, but basically it's felt good 
to be able to speak for my ancestors and to let to connect to them and to see what would my grandma want me to say you know she was really about love and about unity and about embracing all people and she would say to me you know there's going to be a golden time on earth where everyone is going to connect and Sikhism the teachings of Sikhism and oneness um, are going to be really important for that and sure enough I go to yoga festivals in Europe and I hear people chanting the sacred words of my ancestors from all backgrounds and I feel such love and such uh, transcendent joy that uh, these gifts from my ancestors are being, in some cases, treasured and respected. In some cases, treasured and respected. Yes, that's, I'm so grateful that that is beginning to happen and that you're actually getting to see it because that means it's happening on an even better scale if you're getting to witness it. Yeah. Let's get into the nitty gritty of it. So, I am a settler. I come from a long line of colonizers. I am eight nationalities, not including Canadian and American, and a lot of them are European. And how do I... Yeah, sorry, I just want to go back because one of the things you'd said in one of your interviews was... Um, the, the question that we can be asking ourselves is how can I develop a reciprocal relationship to yoga in India and how can I be responsible for uh, healing intergenerational he- or for Trauma. helping and yeah. intergenerational healing? Yeah. Considering my healing. ancestors. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. So how can I, considering my ancestors, operate in this space with yoga respectfully? Yeah. Yeah, it's such an important question. And the first thing I would say is to access your ancestors, to really get in touch with them. And this can be tricky if our ancestors have done things that we're not proud of. And, you know, as someone who was born on the land of the Anglo-Saxons in England, I have a really unique positionality because my early childhood for four years was on that British island that took over how many countries or the sun never set on the British Empire, like... 25% of the earth was occupied. I don't know. It was a massive amount, right? But, But it's interesting because had that language of English not been spread so deep or of Spanish and in other cases, you know, Spanish being the most widely spoken language on the planet, all due to colonization, I would say in in big part, um, you know, maybe you and I wouldn't be able to communicate. Maybe I, maybe this, this bridge wouldn't have been built. And that's really complex because there's so many gray zones here. It's not that all colonizers were bad. I mean, it was definitely, like a different time and there were serious, serious issues of what some colonizers did. But there's a part of me that wonders if some people who were explorers also created friendships with people of different cultures and what would cross-cultural learning look like if in the yoga industry, if we came at it from a place of respect and honoring our humanness and our differences. So the first thing I would say for anyone like you is to access your ancestors, whether that's you have to go back to pagan roots, but earth, earth-based earth traditions and embodiment traditions exist in every culture. So sing your ancestral songs, meditate with your ancestors. You don't need to know all the details, but some people like doing a DNA test or, you know, a genetic sort of understanding of where they go are from and then going to those lands and walking on them, you know, when it's, when it's available to us, those are very powerful steps you can do to really know who you are. And when you know who you are as, as a, as a, whoever you are, then you engage from a place that is grounded, that is 
hopefully more integral. That is, you know, the the analogy I give a lot is like when a tree is rooted deeply, its branches can overlap with other amazingly powerful trees. So those of us that know our ancestors, especially white women, especially European ancestry, we need to heal those wounds. I mean, Europeans had massive amounts of trauma with the witch hunts. And, and some people might, you know, say, oh, Emmy, like, you know, maybe you're being too nice to white people or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, maybe I am. But we need to heal these wounds. Like what your ancestors did to my ancestors was not okay. And in order for us to sit in the same room and talk about it, we have to acknowledge our humanness and that in order to build a better future where our children can play free of these systemic barriers, we have to find a bridge to walk across. So um, I would say, first of all, learn your ancestors, recent ancient, modern, all of it, like go back to the roots where you can feel them, learn their food, learn their songs, you know. Um, And then I would say, go into your heart about how do you, how do you have a reciprocal relationship to yoga? How can you uh, appreciate and and be grateful and, and honor the gifts of yoga that have been gifted to the world because my ancestors were super generous you know we believe in sharing food every Sikh temple you go to in the world you will always get a full meal the biggest soup kitchen in the world is the golden temple it feeds 80,000 to 100,000 people a day for free you know these kinds of generosities are are gifted from a place of love and also knowing that when we're in trouble for example with covid or whatever that other people are going to come and help us and it's not that india is starving and poor and women are oppressed because that's not the whole story you know i come from a matriarchal lineage you know I, i'm a warrior we're a warrior people so we're strong women and and women control a lot of the finances in a lot of um of my of my culture and women are the ones who make huge decisions around relationships. They might not be in the public sphere all the time, but there's a complex culture there that cannot just be overlaid on by North American or Western thought. And that's what happened in India was that, you know, when the British came, they tried to understand uh, complex philosophies like Vedic, uh, you know, Tantra, all these things by through the lens of organized religion, which was not the case. The class system of England got inlaid onto the caste system of India. You know, all these like Someone said to me, you know, colonization, I think it was Autumn, Autumn, um, Autumn Brown, like Adrian Marie Brown's sister, um, has a beautiful quote about colonization is when the colonizer refuses to be changed by the land that they go to. Um, and they change like they 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 change it, but refuse to be changed by it or something like that. That's so good. And, and yeah. And there's there's something around, you know, we can all learn and give to each other. And if there has been historical pain and trauma that needs to be addressed and and that harm needs to be repaired. So um, what yoga, you know, many people come to yoga with such a good open heart and intentions. And they don't even realize that they're doing harm. Um, so my job as an educator is to talk about how can we repair harm? How can we move forward into a better world? And that requires facing some deep, ugly truths of what our recent ancestors, if you're white, did. Um, and that's a, that's a game that I, I I mean I can't even fathom the the type of pain to be the oppressor to have to inflict violence on other humans is its own kind of sacrificing your soul type thing. So that's the work of white people to do because I don't know what that's like, but I do know what it's like to be oppressed um, 
systemically and to have not the same opportunities. So, you know, a lot of my work is uplifting other people of color and BIPOC wellness people and yoga people, but also because I was born on Anglo-Saxon territory and I have deep spiritual lineage to Celtic uh, spiritual practices. You know, I believe we have human ancestral lineage and then we also have spiritual lineage where we feel connected to different places in the world through our spirit, you know, and some of my deepest spiritual homelands spiritual lineages have been in Greece and in England, you know, in Norway. And those um, women and friends I have made over there have, have shown me deep generosity. So we're all giving and taking, but it hasn't been equal in the past and we're moving toward that. Does that make sense? I know it's it a lot, does. Oh, yeah. that's, I, I really love that concept of spiritual lineage. I, the yeah. only time outside of North America that I've been was I spent a few weeks in, in China and Beijing and wow. I had more than once someone be like, you, you seem like you're from here. Like something about you seems like something in your lineage was, was from here. And I'm like, Ooh, I got goosebumps. Yes. Right. Cause you recognize it. And, and I, you know, in, in Indian thought, you know, reincarnation is a thing, right? So maybe you have past lives there who knows, right? Um, there's, there's so much we don't know, but if we feel a heart connection, which I think so many people feel when they go to India because of the land there, the land has thousands of years of extremely advanced understandings of, you know, the first person to come up with concepts of like, like the Rig Veda way before Copernicus and all these other people had concepts of the solar system had concepts of math of zero of you know like the Indus Valley region had advanced sanitation 5,000 or 10,000 years ago you know it was an incredibly advanced civilization um, rich trade routes before the British came India was 25% of the world's economy all the trade 25% when the British left 4% 4%. So we are reeling from 400 years of real horrible, horrific human history. And um, I'm hopeful that by speaking the truth and sharing and, and, and coming from that heart-centered place that our children can grow up in a different world. I want to, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I still want to word it this way. Is it accurate that yoga predates religion? or at least yes. the religions that it's associated with. Yeah, so in my opinion, yoga is influenced and did influence all of the major religions of India. And even that term religion is problematic, right? Because it's a Western term. You know, Vedic philosophy, or otherwise known as Hinduism, according to the British, uh, and Hindu doesn't accurately, is not a right, not a correct term. It refers, you know, it's coming out of, yeah, it, it's just not the right word. The Vedas, um, you know, came after some of the archaeological evidence of yoga in the early Indus Valley region. And then there's all these written texts from thousands of years ago that connect yoga to India. And one of the kind of um, backlashes that I've had from having this conversation has been people claiming that yoga comes from Africa or that yoga comes from somewhere else. And I'm like, okay, you know, yes, if we go all the way back, we all come from Africa, but we need to see whose identity and written um, written history and archaeological history and who claims that as a spiritual practice. That is also very important. Um, so I want to be really careful and say that, you know, uh, thousands of years of written and archaeological evidence point to yoga originating in the north of India. 
During its revitalization in the 1930s, after being banned and all spiritual Indian practices being temple dancing being banned, the British seeing these things as deviant, as inferior, you know, Victorian era repression coming down on Tantra, even though Tantra isn't about sex, it's about seeing the divine and everything. You know, there's so much pain here. Um, and then to say to us, oh, no, yoga isn't yours that's very, very harmful to Indian people. So um, I think what we need to remember is that, you know, yoga to me was a shamanic practice initially. It was a direct revelation. It was a worshiping the sun, worshiping the earth, worshiping the goddess. All of that is found in cultures all around the world. We all have our own earth-based um, embodiment spiritual practices. Um, I believe shamanism exists in all ancient cultures. And by going back to realize, okay, we all have different ways of connecting, but yoga is one way that in the 20th century met the needs of a people that were finally like ready to receive it um, in a, and heal from this hyper-masculine, yang-oriented, achievement-oriented. Like yoga gave people in North America a time to pause, to go inward, to find peace and bliss. And in the 60s, you know, that's, uh, if there's any decade I would have wanted to live in in the 20th century, it would have been the 60s, you know? Um, but yeah, so I can't remember what your original question was, well, but I. I hope you answered it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you did. Yes, uh, it was that yoga predates uh, the religion. Predates religion. Yeah, so it's influenced and is influenced by all the major religions, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, you know, um, uh, Hinduism, like even Islam, Sufism, all of those have, are connected to yoga, but yoga predates it. And yoga is to me still a secular practice because it depends on what lineage of you're practicing. And even though there's always going to be a spiritual element to yoga, because that's what yoga is about is union, you know, with your mind and your body, your heart and your body. Um, there, there, there is always, you know, eventually, even if you start yoga and thinking it's physical exercise, you will find your heart in the process. Um, and it's a mystical practice. It's a mystical practice. It's a direct path. I love that. I know you've said once that yoga for you is a place to land and heal. Yeah. And yes. that um, yoga can help us process specific emotions. So while we're here crying on our yoga yeah. mat together, yes. um, I really want to I want to go into that because as we've talked about uh, prior to this, crying on our yoga mats isn't just about the sad tears. It's about releasing. It's about joy. So I want to ask you, what was or what has been one specific crying on your yoga mat moment? Such a great question. And I, I really do think there is an element of catharsis in yoga because in yoga, we're working with the energy meridians of the body. We're working with the wisdom of the body and the breath. The breath is so foundational to yoga, you know. And um, one moment when I had a crying on my yoga mat moment was in Edinburgh. I was over there in Europe living and working as a yoga teacher. Um, and I was applying for a job at a very trendy Edinburgh yoga studio. So this is going back to like 2017. And I was, I was there 
almost every day because I had applied for a job and I was trying, they gave me a few free classes and they said, you know, come. And and I was trying to build rapport with the other teachers and trying to get a sense of the studio. And I really found myself trying to fit myself into a box of who I thought they wanted me to be. So, you know, I, I have a very curvy body. I am, I'm fit. I'm healthy. I've never um, been a naturally thin person, um, you know, and I, I sometimes feel very self-conscious in these weird white yoga world where my body is not really the dominant body or my skin, my skin color is not seen in the studio. So anyways, I was at this studio in Edinburgh at night in a restorative class and Shavasana happened and I was far from home and I was staying with my friend. I really wanted to get this job and I really could see myself living in Scotland. And I, I love Edinburgh. You know, I've been there many times and I'm a British citizen as much as anybody else, you know, even though I had to fight for my passport, like I, I, I was born there, you know? So anyways, I'm in this yoga class and she's doing Shavasana. She's playing all this beautiful music and, and I'm just sobbing because I found a sense of peace, yes, in that class, but I also had this deep sense of not belonging. Mm. And the sense of when I look back on it, I, I really put my heart out to that younger self because she was trying to make it in the world. You know, she was trying to to fend for herself and to and to get a job. And why was it so hard for me to get a job? You know, and then to the ending of the story is after crying on that class the next day, I went in and, and after a week of trying to figure out whether or not they're going to hire me, I just went straight to the manager and I said, do, do you so what do you think? Do you think I have a job? Even though I've done an interview, I've an audition I've come every day for a week to try to fit into your mold and she said oh we don't know you can uh, call us back in eight weeks in eight weeks and that kind of like lack of professionalism I remember crying the whole way home I cried for 20 minutes I just turned up at my friend's door and she took me into her arms and she said you know it's okay like it's okay you know it's not meant for you I think those moments where something's not meant for us and we think that we're supposed to fit knowing that it's okay to let go of that and that the path that is meant for us will be even better than you could imagine. You know, when one door closes, it means there's a beautiful window opening to the best sunset you could ever see. Like there's, there are always better paths. That's amazing. That was a beautiful tie-in as well. And I mean, like you'd said earlier, if if you weren't willing to do this, we wouldn't be having this conversation. If you'd stayed in yeah. Scotland, maybe you wouldn't have had the experiences with your Coast Salish friends that you have no. that absolutely transformed you. No. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know if I would be the same person, you know, it's like this crossroad moments when, when we can take one direction or someone says, you know, unprofessionally to us that can't tell us yes or no, you know, <laughs> like all I needed was a no, <laughs> you know, um, but because they could never really give me a reason because they knew that I was teaching real yoga and they weren't, you know, that was, that was the real pain was like, this feeling of, I want to teach deep ancestrally connected yoga, the yoga that I was raised in from the age of 11 with my grandmother and my mom in a temple, in a community center. Like, I know I'm trained in Hatha, you know, what more do you want from me? Like, I know I'm good at my job. And the fact that I threaten them just by being myself, I think that's an experience many, a lot of us misfits can relate to. We're just our presence of being different and being unique. You know, it just triggers people. And that's great. 
that's a power. That's something that, you know, we have to be ourselves. We have to be authentic. Um, and uh, you're right. Like, you know, I don't know where I would be had I not made that decision to continue on and, and find a different place of work. But um, but I'm glad I was fired by that yoga studio. Heck yeah. Well, I mean. Before they, I even started. They Well, one, obviously they did not deserve you. Two, Nothing. they would not have treated you well. Let's just no, start with that. No. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, this has been such a good conversation. I've really enjoyed this. I feel so close to you. Even the first um, the phone first phone call we had last week where we spoke for five minutes, I was like, oh, heck yeah, this is going to be just fine. We're going to get along just Yes. <laughs> yes, totally, totally. And it means the world to me when people approach these conversations from an ethical place, from, you know, from a, you, you sent the most beautiful email because you were so self-aware and so conscious of your social location and to go about this in in right relationship and you know it all starts with relationships and it starts with friendships and it starts with getting to know India and Indian people and seeing what they think about yoga and you know many of us have been disconnected from our ancestors because it was banned because we were seen as inferior because it was seen as deviant or whatever and you know going back and doing those practices for myself and talking with people from all different backgrounds about how yoga can benefit them how it can heal how it can bring peace how it can bring calm you know I I do a lot of myth busting but I I really appreciate people like you JD who are approaching this from uh, a concerned and aware and humanly conscious and spiritually conscious place. I think we need to make that distinction of like our human selves are, have been wounded. You know, our, our ancestors have done some, some, some shit. Just going to put it out there. <laughs> I don't know if I'm to swear, but there's been some bad stuff. Right. And, and, and that doesn't mean that we need to perpetuate that violence. We don't need to continue these cycles. But in order to step out of the cycle of violence, we have to make a choice. And so you're making that choice to be an advocate and to be someone who is building bridges and um, is, is trying their best to continue, even though there's been some pain, you know, and that means the world to me. And I also just, I just feel really glad to be connected with you and, and you seem like a rad, rad being. So yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't want to perpetuate harm. I've done so much harm in my life just being ignorant. I come from a church background. So not only have I done harm now, my ancestors, again, have just done tons and tons of harm and yeah. like current day. Yeah. 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 And that kind of violence from organized religion is really deep, right? It's a crown chakra kind of thing. And what I see a lot is people finding healing from the church in yoga, which is really beautiful. Like, it's really beautiful because, you know, I personally... Um, I don't think I've ever said this on a podcast before, but I personally, in one of the darkest moments of my life, had a direct connection to Jesus. And I don't consider myself Christian. I don't consider myself any religion, but Jesus appeared to me um, in, in a very dark time in my life. And so did Mary Magdalene later on in my life and, and, and Mother Mary. You know, th we have spiritual lineages that go beyond borders, beyond color, beyond diversity. Like we have connections that are inexplicable. We have experiences that are inexplicable. And 
so I've never resonated with the church or, you know, all the institutions or the systems. I don't agree with what's happened. However, there are teachers that have walked this earth, prophets of all backgrounds, whether they're from Iran or from you know, whoever, Middle East or from South America, shamans, you know, there are people from all cultures who have spiritual gifts. And um, yoga is is a spiritual gift from India. It's yoga is a, an accessible way to feel your body, to reclaim your body, to heal your mind, you know, mental health and healing happens all the time on the yoga mat. And uh, yoga teachers uh, represent sort of a liminal space sometimes. They're not a therapist. We're not here to, you know, be your therapist, but we are here to hold space for you to be who you are and not label you and just to accept you. And my relationships with my students have been some of the most profound and beautiful relationships I've ever had. That's amazing. I, I love that. I, I love learning about things that previously were, were misconstrued. Like I, last year after the the pandemic began. I obviously lost my job and was thinking, where do I go next? And I was actually thinking of becoming a yoga teacher. I told my dad about it and he said, okay, as long as you don't teach meditation. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. And there's a big fear. There's a big fear, right? Um, and that fear is born of ignorance. It's not built on unity. It's a fear that they don't understand. Yep. And if they took the time to read and see, you'd see so many commonalities between prayer, between hands-on healing, between like there are always bridges that can be built. Absolutely. And like you like you said, it's it's the it's the taking the step to actually making sure that you're taking those bridges. Cause I know a lot of yeah. institutions keep things separate. They purposely Yes. have us not interact with one another because yes, exactly. the echo chamber is easier to we won't get into that <laughs> that's how that's how they maintain power really that's how you know those in power maintain power is is by separating us dividing us divide and conquer right that's how it happened in india um and i think that you know we have so many more similarities than we think we do. And if people actually took the time to learn what meditation is and that it's not a doctrine, it's not scary, it's not going to brainwash you, you know, it's like... It's the opposite of brainwashing. That's the funny it. thing. Yeah. yeah, It's the awareness of ourselves. And that is inherently the most powerful thing you can do is to go inward and to know yourself. And for those of us that are willing to take that step of self-inquiry, we can then, once we've done enough work and, and gotten to a certain place within ourselves, and of course that never ends, we're always working on ourselves, but then we can extend our hands out to others in an interfaith kind of perspective or an interspiritual perspective or a transpersonal perspective and say, okay, we might have different beliefs. We might have different histories. We might have different cultures, but we can still see each other as human and we can still be reciprocal. Yes. You know, I smile at you, you smile back at me. Great. Or like I give you some money to for food and then you share a meal with me from your ancestors. But it cannot be a one-way relationship anymore. People cannot continue to consume everything from India without giving something back, you know? And I think you sending that email and reaching out to me and having this conversation is such a great first step in giving back, you know, and, and I'd be happy to have a meal with you one day and, you know, talk more and, and, and learn about your path because we can all learn from each other. That's the other thing, you know, everyone can be our teacher. 
and no people group is a monolith. So no me speaking is the monolith. Yeah, us speaking to one another. And that's, again, that's the importance of individual conversation because yeah. you can't speak for your entire ancestry and neither can no. I. And neither no. of us is sitting here saying that we are. This is no. Emmy's experience. This is JD's experience. Exactly. And that's what makes yes. it so rich. Exactly. Oh, yes. You're an enlightened being. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I'm trying so freaking hard. We're all trying. We're all trying. <laughs> yeah. And it's so great to meet others that are just, you know, like, wow. Yeah. Our humanness and our spirits they dance together, oh, you yes. know. So for those listening that are maybe a few steps behind us on the staircase. <laughs> <laughs> or on a different staircase. Or on or, a different know. staircase. <laughs> or people that are looking up at the staircase going like, holy moly, oh, that's yeah. a huge responsibility. What yeah. is just two things that you would say to them to, one, get them started and to to let them know that it's okay to get started and maybe that permission yeah. slip. Yes. I think releasing self-judgment is such an important step, you know, cultivating self-compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my mainstays of my practice is the metta meditation of extending loving kindness to oneself first, then to a loved one, then to a neutral person, and then to someone that we don't like or hate. Oh. And similar to Tonglen, Tonglen practice, both of these are Buddhist inspired. And, you know, one thing that's interesting around meditation is, yeah, just like med mindfulness, right, is can be used as a tool for the army if it's stripped of its ethical and moral and spiritual roots, right? Meditation comes a lot of it from Buddhism which is nonviolent. And it's so weird that meditation can be used in the army. So tangent aside, I think self-compassion, you know, the Dalai Lama is one of my heroes, just like self-compassion, self-acceptance, coming to a place of like, my emotions are okay. You know, um, it's safe to feel my emotions and emotions are just energy running in motion. They're, they're a response to our thoughts. So when we begin to be aware of our thoughts and then we say, oh, okay, I'm just thinking. I, I, this worry has become so big for me. You know, I struggled a lot with anxiety when I was younger. This worry has become so big for me that it's created a, a catastrophizing situation in my head, you know? And then I step back and I witness myself thinking and that's the mindful moment. And then I'm like, okay, what if I thought that this is going to work out? What mm -hmm. if I chose a different belief system here? What if I could just be and breathe for five seconds? What if I could just inhale and extend my exhale? It changes everything. It's just taking a breath, you know, extending the exhale, breathing into your belly, it changes your brain chemistry. It activates your parasympathetic nervous system. It's proven to work, you know, counted breathing, four, seven, eight breath. There's so many things that come to mind, but I'd say the two things that are most important is self-compassion, self-acceptance, and then feeling your emotions all the way through. And this is the hardest part with the emotion piece is to to step away from the thought. So if you can feel the emotion just in your body, we can move through emotions in 30 seconds, but it's the story that keeps us trapped. So the more we can move from our head down into our body, into our breath and into our heart, the answers are in our heart, you know? Mm. You know, the answers are in our heart. 
That's huge. I don't know if you're familiar with Enneagram at all, but I'm an Enneagram 4, which means I am a very, yes. very, and also human design, I'm emotional authority. So I'm a really emotional human being who gets oh, very, 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 very stuck in emotions. And that's one of yeah. the reasons that I enjoy practicing yoga is because yes. I get to think of nothing but my breath. And I love the yeah. challenge. I love feeling my body shake and my my brain goes from my brain to my body and I feel the thigh shaking and I go, oh, body, you're so strong. Exactly. The body has the answers, the wisdom. I love that you do human design and Enneagram too. I, I am an Enneagram two wing three. Ooh, um, okay, okay, yeah, okay. I go, to, I go to two in stress. Then, so, yep. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I'm human design. I'm a projector. So I'm like not super deep into human design because it's so complex, but human design is fascinating and gene keys. And I just love all these like ways we can understand ourselves, right? And and at the end of the day, you know, know thyself. If you can do that, you're doing great. Absolutely. I know for, for one thing, just in case people are also looking for another tip on how to get out of those emotions, one useful thing I've been taught is to kind of step back from it a bit and going, a part of me is feeling this yes. right now. And then you're able to kind of bird's, bird's eye view that and step out of it. It's yeah. not all of me. Not all of me is tired. Just a little bit of me is tired right now. The rest of me can probably manage or has some other feeling. Yes. Finding the wise part of us. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, you know, I think a lot about like unclenching around the thought or unhooking from the story and stepping back and saying, okay, I'm going to observe my mind for just a moment, take some deep breaths, come back to it, go for a walk on the beach, go for a walk in the forest, you know, nature, yeah, nature is medicine and we're blessed to be on this land, come in full circle, right? Like any land you're on, learn about it and learn about the gifts and the plants and the animals and the people and the ancestors, it all lives in the land. So yeah barefoot all the way. <laughs> oh, heck I yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm one of those people who I'm, if I'm in a group of people and we're just chilling at the beach, my shoes are off and I'm going to go stand over there for a minute and just do love like it. a little dance with my feet in the sand. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Our bodies are strong. Grounding yeah. is ultimate. It's, it's also really good for our gut microbiome. Guys, touch some dirt. It's so good for your body. Yeah. And wash your hands grounding after. What, but. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> grounding is what we need, you know, grounding in this society. If you're living in a Western fast-paced society, get your bare feet on the ground. Absolutely. Well, Emmy, thank you so much for talking with us today. For my audience, where can we find you? So you can find me on my website, which is just Emmy, E-M-M-Y, Chahal, C-H-A-H-A-L.com. And I do lots of work. I do workshops. I do cons consultations one-on-one -on -one with people who want to learn more about um, healing or cultural awareness. Um, I also do yoga in many different capacities. So I'll be happy to work with anybody. And I know that you do yoga for businesses as well sometimes. I do. Yeah, I do a lot of yoga for post-secondary institutions, for tech companies, and for grassroots community organizations. So if anyone listening runs any of those... Your employees need what Emmy has to offer. So go to her website, which is emmychahal.com, and let's get going. <laughs> Thank you. That would be awesome. Yeah, yoga in the workplace can help so much. Amazing. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. You can tag me on Instagram at cryingonmyyogamat so I can see what you're learning and loving about the show. Until next time.